Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sirens ringing out across Kiev mark the outbreak of war in Europe today. Just before 6 a.m. Moscow time, Vladimir Putin declared that special military operations had commenced in Ukraine. Народные республики Донбасса обратились к России с просьбой о помощи. В связи с этим, в соответствии со статьей 51 части 7 Устава ООН, he warned that outside forces that tried to hinder him would face consequences like never before. Multiple explosions occurred across Ukraine as it was hit by airstrikes, cruise missiles and artillery. President Zelensky confirmed that one of Kiev's airports had been taken by airborne Russian forces. Tanks and troops have poured into the country from Russia. This is all-out war. I'm Anne McElvoy with The Economist Asks, and in a special episode this week, we're asking, war in Ukraine, what happens next? The shockwaves of the invasion are being felt around the world, and international condemnation has come swiftly. This is a brutal act of war. Our thoughts are with the brave people of Ukraine. We condemn this barbaric attack and the cynical arguments to justify it. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Having covered both the fall of the Soviet Union and the birth of an independent Ukraine, today's events feel to me like the end of an era of hope for that country and the beginning of a new one in which Russia's regional strife has ignited wider conflict in Europe, also testing a nervous transatlantic security alliance. And my guests also have strong personal connections to this story. Our editor-in-chief, Zani Minton Bedes, cut her teeth working on the restructuring of post-Soviet economies. Shashank Joshi, our defence editor, has been reporting the conflict as it unfolds. And Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor, has been following the shock as stock markets plummet and energy prices soar. Welcome, all of you, to The Economist Asks. Anne, hello. Hello, Anne. Hi, Anne. Great to join you. I want to get a sense from all of you of how big a moment in history you think this is, Zani. You've read it, you've heard it everywhere. This is not just an attack on a sovereign country. It is the future of European security at risk and, frankly, the future of the post-war global order at risk. This is a big moment. Vladimir Putin has, you know, decided that he wants to rail against the empire of lies that is the West and it is really putting the Western world order at stake. It could not be bigger. Shashank is our defence editor in military terms. The great geostrategic impacts of this, how are you seeing it? Well, this has the possibility to be the biggest war in Europe, certainly since the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. But, but if it escalates and if Russia does send in all the combat forces it has gathered on Ukraine's borders, it's possible it could also be the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War. 
And that carries all of the consequences you'd expect in terms of human suffering, refugee flows, and of course, the ever-present possibility of miscalculation or accidents with NATO, the big military alliance that sits just on the other side of Ukraine. Patrick? Well, I think one of the interesting elements is a kind of economic fracturing that's going to be taking place as well as the military confrontation. And really, that marks the end of a 2030 year period when friends and enemies alike traded through a global economy and a global system and instead a shift, I think, towards an economy where different ideological blocks have quite separate economic relationships. Shashank, tell us a bit more about what is happening on the ground in Ukraine. You have some excellent sources both there and in the West. Give us a bit of a steer on that. It's very hard to tell for sure, but we saw the day open with air and missile strikes on Ukrainian key sites, particularly in Kiev around airports. It's very likely the Russians were taking out Ukraine's air defence systems so that they could have freedom of the skies to patrol their aircraft at will. And then we saw various armoured columns move in from, from various directions, from Belarus in the north, from Crimea in the south, and from Western Russia in the east. And certainly we've seen some of those Russian forces make considerable progress. I think as we speak, uh, I've certainly seen forces 60, 70 kilometers into Ukraine in the south near Crimea. And the city of Kharkiv in, the, in eastern Ukraine appears to be in a very, very difficult and dangerous state. But of course, things are moving very fast indeed. And what is it that you think Russia is targeting here? I mean, what is the strategy? Putin says it's just military target. It seems inevitable that civilians are going to be drawn in and, and rather fast. So what do you think he will do in the next days? What Western officials have been telling me, Anne, for months, you know, since, since, since long before this was on people's radars in some ways, was that Putin had a war plan. He had, he had aims and they were to topple the regime in Kiev and install a pro-Russian government. And as sort of outlandish as this seemed at the time, the idea that he was prepared for this, prepared indeed for an occupation, I was told, the military strategy we've seen, the forces that we've seen are consistent with that. Now, we don't know how far he'll go, but the fact that, of course, that he's, he's been sending in an astonishing attack using helicopters and air assault on an airfield just outside Kiev earlier today suggests that he does want to gain control of the capital. And although I think most of the targets so far have been military, I'd be very surprised if we didn't see attacks on political targets, including centres of government, centres of leadership in the hours and days ahead. Shashank, can I just ask you, you've been for the last few days gripping all of us with your briefings on what would happen. And you've laid out in quite some detail uh, and none of us could quite believe this was going to happen. How closely are the facts on the ground now hewing to what you were expecting? In terms of the early phase consisting of airstrikes and missile strikes, that's what we expected. In terms of a multi-axis assault, in other words, uh, military forces on the ground, armoured forces coming in from different points of Ukraine, that is what we expected. But it's too early to say whether every aspect conforms to this. We expected, for example, a pincer movement to capture Ukrainian forces and destroy them around the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Uh, we have to wait and see whether that transpires as expected. We expected Russian forces to advance and encircle Kiev. Uh, it's a little bit early to say how far we're seeing that. Uh, and of course, we, we expected them to try and take the capital city or, or, or destabilize the government. So far, I haven't seen any major efforts at subversion inside Kiev. That could change its early days, but I'm afraid to say a lot of it is as we expected. And do you think that Ukraine can defend itself and to what extent? I think they can impose a heavy cost on Russian forces, but if they throw everything they have, uh, I'm afraid I'm doubtful that Ukrainians can hold out. 
Zani, you saw Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference. How did he seem to you? Well, very brave. He came to Munich despite the Americans telling him that he shouldn't, and he came up on stage. He was brave. He was punchy. He said it plainly to the assembled crowd there. He used the word appeasement. He said that the world's reaction to Vladimir Putin in the last years had been one of appeasement. He said European security architecture was almost destroyed. And then he said, rather tellingly, that it required more than tweets and statements in mass media. It required action. And the room was listening to him. He got a standing ovation at the end. But it was really an admonition at this group of people who were rather sort of self-satisfied at that point about the unity of NATO and the unity of condemnation. And they said again and again there would be very, very powerful package of sanctions were this to happen. And I think the question is now that it has happened, where is this very powerful package of sanctions? Patrick, Ukraine's economy is clearly going to be seriously impacted by this, indeed devastated, but it is also incredibly important, isn't it, in the great ecosphere between East and West trade? Yeah, that's right. What will be happening right now in Ukraine is a kind of liquidity shock and capital flight to the extent people can get money out at all. There are widespread reports of cyber attacks on the Ukrainian banking system, which probably are causing complete mayhem. And then I think a little bit further out, the question will be how badly the industrial infrastructure is impaired uh, by war. And that could include Black Sea ports, power production, electricity, as well as the gas pipelines that uh, cross cross Ukraine and link Russia to its Western markets. Uh, so really, I think people will be considering very much the worst case scenario, uh, not only just the short term shock, but the long term damage to the economy's productive potential. I have to ask you, as, as someone who's covered a large range of these topics for a long time, So how would you place it in the great history of economic shocks that have sprung from geopolitics? You can range back in in history if you like. Well, one of the interesting things, I think, actually, on a slightly shorter timescale of, of, you know, the last decade or so is the world's seen intensifying geopolitical tensions, particularly US-China, but in lots of other places. And frankly, it hasn't really had much impact on financial markets or the global economy at all. And most businesses seem fairly blasé about it. And I think this will be different, one, because of the size of Russia's economy. For it to be isolated is different from Iran or Venezuela. The commodity footprint of Russia will have major impacts in markets and even on inflation. And more broadly, the sense of this trading system and financial system that's been highly globally integrated, finally fracturing and buckling in a big part of the world under the pressure of geopolitical tensions, I think will be a very salutary lesson for markets and and companies. Shashank, Western intelligence has been warning of a step like this for some time. Why does it still seem to have caught a lot of governments and senior figures, both sides of the Atlantic, on the hop? Well, American and British intelligence had sight of Russia's war plans for months. I certainly know the Americans had sight of them in October. So that tells you how much foreknowledge they had. If there's a surprise, I think, first of all, because it's so audacious, so difficult to comprehend, there's cognitive dissonance. But of course, the other thing is European governments were sceptical. They thought, ah, there go those Americans being paranoid again, feeding us intelligence for which they're not showing us the raw material. So I think there was probably some natural scepticism from there. But of course, no one doubts it now. Zanny, you were nodding your head there. I wondered what you thought. You did seem to be looking as if you thought it was such a huge step that it is indeed surprising to some extent. Well, I think it is something that everybody talked about 
being something that could happen, but actually when it does, you just can't quite believe it. It's such a 19th century, 20th century thing to happen that you just can't quite believe this is happening in, the, in 2022. Because in the rational calculus of costs and benefits, from a 2022 perspective of a sort of normal politician, this doesn't make sense. It makes sense, however, I think, from the perspective of Vladimir Putin, a dictator who I really do think has his sort of assignation with history. And, and the way I've been trying to sort of make sense of it myself is to think that, you know, when our great-grandchildren do their history lessons, he doesn't want to be a couple of paragraphs, he wants to be a chapter. He wants there to be a chapter on Lenin, a chapter on Stalin, and a chapter on Putin. And if you want to have a chapter about yourself, then you have to try and invade a country. And if you want a chapter about yourself in a, in a way that is, of course, incredibly damaging to, to Ukraine, to your own country, let alone the wider world, well, there is obviously an end point to that. What do you think, Zani, is at stake here for Vladimir Putin? And, and let's, let's try to see it from his end of the telescope. What do you think his calculation is? I think his calculation is that he will get away with it and that the costs to him, which there will be, are outweighed by the benefits. His ability to, to have his chapter in history, to continue my, my analogy. The costs are real. If you look at you know, what's happened to the stock market in Moscow today, if you look at the real hit that Russian companies are going to take, and we can talk in a minute about whether we think the sanctions will be as draconian as the West is promising, but even if they're not as draconian as the West promises, you know, Russia will be hit. It's an integrated economy. It's not entirely autarkic. And so it will be hit. And the question is whether, whether Vladimir Putin, a dictator who totally controls the domestic media, can get away with it. And I think there are two things to bear in mind. One is what happens to Russian soldiers. How many lives are lost? And this is something that Shashank will have a clearer view on. But I think if body bags start coming back in large numbers to Russia, that will be hard for him. And remember that Russia and Ukraine, you know, many, many, many Russians have family in Ukraine and vice versa. These are, you know, incredibly interlinked countries. And so the mood, I think, is one of sort of fear within Russia, concern, notwithstanding the extraordinary propaganda machine that has revved up to talk of genocide perpetrated by the Ukrainians and the Western plot on Ukraine. I think people are worried about what is happening. So if there is a huge loss of life, that will hurt him. And over time, if the economy becomes you know, more isolated, living standards fall further, that too will hurt him. Shashank, last time you were on the show with our colleague Arkady Ostrovsky, he was taking us back to a very well-known Russian saying from the Second World War, let there be anything but war. There is an interesting gap and a tension, isn't there, between Russian public opinion and a default setting which is very, very wary of war, knows the cost of it, and Putinism. How do you read that? I think what I've seen in Moscow this morning is utter shock from serious foreign policy commentators, analysts, elites. None of them thought this was possible, even more so than in the West. And so that gap is dangerous. But Putin's regime, as of course we showed in a fantastic essay on our website just a few days ago by Alexander Gabuev, is a, a narrow one that's been dominated increasingly by a small band of securocrats who are insular, who benefit from sanctions, have their assets in Russia, are stuck in Russia. They can't go to the West. They can't travel to the West. They can't move their finances to the West. And so for them, this sort of garrison state at odds with the world isn't really a problem. But whether that's sustainable over the long run is the bigger question here. Patrick, talking to those who have wealth in Russia, to oligarchs, minigarchs, it does seem to me that the weak flank is economic for Vladimir Putin. Will they stand by him when their considerable 
wealth with which goes a lot of their power and their self-image is at risk. Well, I think that that's partly a question about the political economy of Russia. And I, I, the assumption that any billionaire Russian in Saint-Tropez has influence in, in the Kremlin, I think, is obviously pretty misplaced. And uh, I was struck by our, our Schumpeter columnist this week uh, looking at Gazprom, whose boss welcomed sanctions, individual sanctions on him uh, when they landed as a kind of virility symbol a sign that he was aligned with Putin. And I think the hardcore of decision makers, even economically around the Kremlin, either don't care or are largely insulated from the kind of personal sanctions on tycoons that get a lot of publicity in the West. There was a terrific piece by our colleague Arkady Ostrovsky last week where he wrote about the technocratic elite of Russia, the business elite, those people who really still believe in Russia as an economy, an open economy that has one foot in the West, for them, the future of that Russia has now gone, or is at least massively questioned. And I think that's where it's not just the oligarchs, but it's the, it's the ordinary Russian. I'll read you a, an email I got today from a friend of mine who is Russian. The subject was worst day of my life. And then it says, shame, guilt, and helplessness. I guess this is how a normal German felt when he woke up in his home in the UK on September 1st, 1939. This is a friend of mine who's Russian and lives in England. But I think there is that sense amongst many, many middle-class Russians that the Russia that they thought was still there is no longer. So, Patrick, prior to Russia's invasion, America, Britain and the EU imposed sanctions against Russian banks and a handful of oligarchs. Today, world leaders are expected to announce a much tougher round. How much pressure then do you think sanctions really put on on Russia? You've reflected the view that there is great insulation between Vladimir Putin and uh, those who carry Russia's enormous wealth or have somehow managed to get their hands on it. So, you know, sanctions, how useful are they really? Yeah, well, I think they can cause a lot of pain, but not a knockout blow for Russia. And that's that's the bottom line. If the West wants to get more serious, the two areas where the balance of economic power means the West can exert great pain on Russia is finance, where blocking the banks from using dollars, and tech, where depriving Russia of uh, semiconductors and software. Uh, both of those areas in the short and long term can cause real problems. The trickier area is energy, which is a, a mutual dependency where sanctioning Russia's energy complex could impede the flow of oil and gas to the Western world. And, and there, I think the, the, the balance of power means it's not actually an area of Western leverage. Over time, Russia has very clearly tried to insulate its economy by using fewer dollars, trading less with America, trading more with China, and building up a massive war chest of foreign reserves. And all of that puts it in a position, assuming the energy flows continue, I think, to survive the sanctions onslaught. And Shashank, that pivot of Russia to China, uh, long predicted, much analysed, indeed slightly pre-analysed, uh, I thought for a long time, looks like this may be the moment when it would look rather tempting uh, for the Russian economy to pivot decisively towards a relationship with China. Is that the way you're seeing it? Well, I think both economically and diplomatically, we're seeing Russia and China move closer together. Just a week or so, two weeks before the war began, we saw this extraordinary joint statement between Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin. China didn't give the war its blessing, but it did endorse Russia's uh, hostility in opposition to NATO expansion, which, of course, is one of Putin's principal complaints that has laid the, the groundwork to this moment. So I'm seeing a moment in history where Beijing and Moscow 
are perhaps the closest they have been uh, since the earlier phases of the Cold War. What's happening is also a key test of Western influence. The sanctions regime can be imposed by Europe and America, but can it be enforced globally? That requires China, India, or other countries to agree to mimic Western policy. And I do not think they're going to do that. Um, they may do it partially, but it'll, it'll be half-hearted. And I think that does create a situation where the balance of Russian financial payments and over time, physical exports of goods and so on, will shift towards China. Zani, what is your view here? You're guiding uh, coverage in our leader line ultimately on sanctions. It's a particularly fraught area, which many reasonable people have quite wide disagreements for a paper, as as we have previously called it, but at The Economist as a whole, is it's a free trade entity. It's quite difficult to get very friendly with sanctions without there being something that's clearly to be gained. What is your view and what is to be gained and what, what should we be wary of? I think in this case, it's really the only serious alternative. If you want to try and deter Vladimir Putin, or now you want to try and punish him, having failed to deter him, sanctions are at all. And I think sanctions, if wielded you know, with force, can be effective. The tragedy or, or the sort of irony of sanctions is if you wield them so dramatically that they're effective, then as Patrick says, countries will try their best to insulate themselves from sanctions, which is why Russia has $600 billion of reserves. It's why it's created a fortress economy. It's why it's tried to build its own tech stack, as they call it. It's tried to insulate its technology from the West. But it hasn't quite got there yet, which means that there are still ways in which the West can inflict real harm, whether it is by preventing the export of key technologies, whether it is by preventing access to the Western financial system. I think Patrick is right that in the long term, it is going to be ever harder for the West to do this. But I think with appropriate conviction and determination, a united West could actually make a big difference. What's not clear to me yet is whether the West will be, notwithstanding its rhetoric, united enough to put in place seriously tough sanctions. And if sanctions are not tough, then they are really ineffective. I suppose a lot of people listening will be fascinated, horrified, concerned about the detail of this, but they'll also just be wondering, what does this mean for the big picture? What does it mean for the global economy? Patrick? Well, I think the most obvious impact is just energy prices and household bills. The cost of fueling a car is going to go up. So the oil price has already risen from about 80 to over $100 and could well actually go higher. We could see the ripple effect also as sanctions begin to bite, affecting the price of other commodities. And Russia's a, a big exporter of a wide range of metals and even, even wheat. Beyond that, I think the impact hopefully will be more limited in the short term. There's some risk of a kind of financial rupture if Russia's entire financial system is cut off overnight from the West. I think that's not very likely, but um, it's possible. The bigger longer term economic implication is just the fracturing of the system of globalization further. And this is an event rather like, I think, China's entry into the global trading system in the 1990s, which had momentous consequences for consumers everywhere. I see this as one of a rupture of a similar consequence that will literally change how global capitalism works. Sunny? That's interesting. I'm not sure it's quite as big as that in magnitude, but I do think it will have long-term consequences that are, one, the nature of global supply chains, two, things like European energy security is now really is going to change. The Europeans have been incredibly reliant on Russian gas 
that is going to change. You already saw a change in mindset in Germany before the invasion. Now that will be cemented. There will be the building of LNG terminals. There will be a rethinking of how Europe gets its energy. And so, yes, more fracturing of globalization, more shifting into groups, if you will, the Western group and the, for the moment, let's call it the autocrats group. I worry, though, that these sanctions will be less dramatic than perhaps we are now thinking they will be. And what's more, they have to be dramatic and stay dramatic. And that's the difficulty with sanctions. Is the West willing to sustain this in the face, as Patrick says, of soaring energy prices, of consumers' wallets being hit hard? Is the political momentum really going to be there to sustain it? So Shashank, when you look at what has happened now, um, do you think it was a good idea for President Biden to rule out any kind of military action on the behalf of the US? Zani, I think it's correct that the US and its allies are not sending troops to confront Russia inside Ukraine. But I think it was a mistake to signal and telegraph so clearly that not only would we not send troops into Ukraine, that we would leave and withdraw every single one of our military advisors uh, weeks ago, uh, long before a conflict began. There is some sense in leaving some doubt in the Russians' mind. That means, can they be sure they won't be killing Americans when they start bombing Ukrainian sites? I think we have an adversary here that has threatened nuclear escalation. That's what Vladimir Putin threatened uh, this morning as we speak. And if you are an adversary, if you're an alliance, NATO, that looks like it isn't willing to run any risk, that it's willing to de-escalate when the other side escalates, I think that's a problem for deterrence, particularly as we think about the big question of what are Vladimir Putin's ambitions beyond Ukraine? Were you surprised, Shashank, when you read those words of Vladimir Putin's from last night about basically threatening nuclear war? No, because we had Russian strategic nuclear exercises last week. And of course, you'd expect Putin to do everything in his power to signal, stay out of my way in Ukraine. And the challenge for NATO is managing the, these real risks of having hundreds of thousands of Russian forces in close proximity to Western aircraft, Western ships, but without being seen to be so cautious and so terrified of escalation that we simply give Putin free run in Eastern Europe. That would be a big mistake. Zani, what do you think the risks are now for NATO? Many people absolutely outraged by the behaviour of Vladimir Putin, but they will be worried. They'll be worried about the idea of what we used to call the superpower conflict kicking off again, particularly with that nuclear threat being brandished there. Your view of where NATO should perhaps be heading in the next few few weeks and what we should be talking about there? I think the risks are that um, President Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference will be proved right, that the West will be very good at words and much less good at actions. And I think there is a real test of credibility ahead. There have been fine words, fine words about the unity of NATO, the importance of the Western alliance, the absolute commitment. And I think it's now central to see, are there commensurate actions being taken in the face of this flagrant aggression. And that means, are troops being moved to forward positions? And this is very much more Shashank's territory than mine, but are actions being taken that put some credibility behind the fine words? And I think that's what people are going to be looking for, both on the military side and also on the sanctions side, because we've had the rhetoric. We now need to see, I think, the actions. There will be those, however, who say, look, if you start moving NATO troops up to, to borders in the Baltic states, NATO members, yes, but seen uh, or at least presented by Russia as a, a provocation, that that is 
adding to the, the dangers of the conflict, spiraling even further out of control and sucking in more countries. Shashank, what do you make of that criticism? What I'd say is Google a map of Ukraine as we talk about this and look at the little stretch of territory that goes from Poland up into the Baltic states. That's called the Sawalki Gap. Uh, and it, it's really what connects continental Europe to the Baltic states in their very vulnerable position up out there in the northeast. And with Russia's forces perhaps permanently now in Belarus and huge numbers of forces in Ukraine and, and perhaps trying to seize control of that country, this is a new and dangerous level of threat to Eastern Europe. And so uh, whatever the risks, uh, and they are there, it is imperative that we reassure those allies and reinforce that flank. But if I could briefly just come back to one point, Anne, that I raised with you the last time we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this is a profound dilemma for the Biden administration because it does present very real trade-offs between its commitments to Europeans and its commitments in Asia. There is no way around those trade-offs. Zani, you know Washington very well. You've been there through a number of presidencies. How do you see the choice that President Biden is now facing? Well, I think Shashank puts it very well. There is a challenge and a dilemma for the US. This is happening at a time when it really wants to be focused on the challenge from China. On the other hand, President Biden is probably the best equipped current leader in the US to deal with this. He knows Vladimir Putin very well. He's enormously experienced in European foreign policy. He's an absolute transatlanticist. But I think the question is basically, during the Cold War, Europe's security was underwritten by a completely focused America. And the question now in this new, I don't know whether we want to call it a new Cold War, but whatever this new era is that we have been plunged into, can Europe rely on that absolutely determined support from the US? It certainly has it rhetorically, and it certainly you know, has it in terms of warning about this invasion and extraordinarily effective attempts at building alliances and strengthening alliances in the last few weeks and months. But going forward, is that commitment from the US really there? And I'll just leave you with one thing. There is an election in the US in 2024, and we are not at all sure who's going to win that election, but it is perfectly possible that it could be Donald Trump. And you saw Donald Trump's comments in the last few days. You know, how would we all feel if he were in the White House? And just that possibility must give us all huge pause for thought. I suppose we should end following that up, Shashank, perhaps a hope and a fear from you. Well, my hope is that this is a moment of reckoning for Vladimir Putin, that he's bitten off more than he can chew, that he can't seize control of Ukraine, his forces suffer losses, that this shakes his grip on power. And we see perhaps the beginnings, just the beginnings of change in Russia in a more positive direction. But I fear that's being a little bit optimistic and we'll have to see how it unfolds in the days ahead. And I think for those of us who spent uh, part of our careers in Russia and, and Ukraine, that is very much a thought that's echoed and, and felt uh, as well as simply thought. Zani Shashank and Patrick, on a somber day for Ukraine in the wider world, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Anne. Thanks very much, Anne. I'm, I'm sure I'll see you here before long. Goodbye, Anne. On a very grim day, as you say. And all of us on the show today would love to hear from you. What should the West do to help Ukraine what is at stake for the wider world and what should NATO commit to or possibly avoid? If you've any relevant personal stories, we would, of course, like to hear them too. You can write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. For your best introductory offer to all of our coverage on this fast-moving and vital story, go to economist.com slash podcast offer the link 
is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.